Well, good morning. My name is Barry, um, one of the uh, pastors here. Uh, it's very good to see you. Um, if you're new and visiting us, I'd love to meet you afterwards, say hello. Um, we're doing um, two weeks on two of the Psalms. I, I'm going to do Psalm 1 um, today, and Chris is going to do Psalm 8, I think it's Chris, uh, next week. Um, and um, this is a sort of a prelude, really, to the thing that Mark that, uh, announced in the notices there, which is uh, this initiative, Bible in a Year, uh, where we're hoping as a church family, or as many of us as, as possible, to walk through the Bible together in a year. By, by, and this booklet just gives us the framework to do that. Um, very simple to use. You need the booklet, a Bible, and either a magnifying glass or very long arms, and then you're away. Okay? Um, it's quite small, but it's designed to you know, tuck away and be easy to, easy to carry. Um, accompanying us every single day of the year will be a psalm or a portion of a psalm. And I thought it would be good just to outline um, what those psalms are about very briefly this morning. And look in particular at this one, which is a, um, quite a key one, the beginning of the Psalter. The, the very opening words of the psalmist and the collection um, of the Old Testament psalms of God. There are uh, five books in the Bible described as books of wisdom. Psalms is one, Proverbs is another, Job, which is an extraordinary book, is a third, uh, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. They are not easy books. They're not simple or um, puerile or facile writings. They are profound in what they try and say. Um, the Psalms are um, very much so. They're, not, they're no less than the other books. They are a mixture of things which really challenge us in the way we think. Central to them all is this important truth, that the key to life is placing God's law at the center of how you live. God's law, I think, is best thought of as not a set of rules, regulations, and barriers and restrictions, but of God's character acted out in life. And if you can sort of think of it that way, it makes it much more relational, much more between you, God, and the world, rather than you and a piece of paper and a set of rules. It may look like rules, but actually it's the relationship with God that's being celebrated and rejoicing in his character and how that plays out in life, rather than the legalism which Jesus encountered when he came. So that's the first thing. When we talk about rejoicing in the law of the Lord, we are participating in the personality of God, not just in legalistic rules. Secondly, the Psalms seek to do and, and succeed in doing, proclaiming a higher truth than the one that is evident to your eyes before you. If you've got Psalm 1 in front of you, and if you've got a Bible, have a look at it, quick scan of it, and see what it says. Um, Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Um, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Um, and it implies that the wicked get punished and the just 
get rewarded? How long does it take you to say, hang on a minute? About three seconds, wasn't it? About, about that. Hang on a minute. That's not right. That just isn't true. And you start to lean forward, much as I'm doing now, and doing this. Now, that isn't true. And the body language changes, and straight away, the psalm has hit you between the eyes and said, what you think is true may not actually be the case. There is dissonance. There is tension. Um, If you're in a good mood, you call it a paradox. If you're feeling stroppy, you call it a contradiction. All right? And that very much depends on what mood you're reading it in, which word you use. But either way, tensions, paradoxes, even contradictions are very creative in the biblical text. They do serve a useful purpose. They decenter the whole thing away from me and my reason and my experience and say to me, you know what, there's a higher truth. There's something which transcends what you know and what you think to be right and fair and just and all the rest of it. And there's also a time scale and a bigger picture which you, especially living in the West and with your instant coffee and your super glue and you don't have to wait for anything and your internet where you get everything instantly, well, it sticks straight away, doesn't it? You don't have to wait, you see. And then if you do wait, in fact, you can't get your fingers off. There's a time scale where things operate in God's plan which do not fit with our preferred one. And when you're reading the Psalms, um, in fact the Bible as a whole, you have to bear that in mind. Psalm 1 sets the tone for this. It puts out a higher truth. It doesn't look as though it's true. And um, asks you to walk with that. But superficially, if you read it, it's an odd place to start, Psalm 1. It doesn't say the things you might expect it to say. For one thing, it's not devotional. It doesn't call upon the name of God particularly or say anything very much about him. It's not a hymn of worship nor uh, um, of praise, lamentation, or joy as such. Um, It's not God, actually, who is the focus of attention of this psalm, or so it would seem. But actually, humanity. It puts man at the start of the story. Blessed or happy is the man all right. So straight away we get this very important concept that at the center of God's laws and will and ambitions and dreams for his creation is mankind. And that says something about you because unless I'm missing something, all of you belong to that definition. God holds you at the center of his will and what he says here is about you because he loves you. And the idea of the centrality of God's teaching, in, in Hebrew it was Torah, the law, is the key to the health of society and the blessing and the happiness of individuals who make it up. Um, let me get my little magic thing here. I've got a clicker. And I want to ask you this question. It's a long question. It's got several commas in it, so you may struggle. But this is the question that this psalm asks. I just lifted this out of a commentary because I thought, despite the fact it's a long sentence, it says it very well. What is the realm of thinking, the worldview, your definition of truth, of behaving, and of belonging? And I think that's a key word. 
in which your choice of allegiance is made and carried through. It needs to be read several times, that, but it's a very challenging question. It ought to have a question mark at the end, but leave that aside. Your definition of truth, of behaving, and of belonging. With whom will you walk? Whose truth will you hear? And how will that influence your choices and behavior? And the psalmist is contrasting, then, two types of choice. Will you walk in the ways of the wicked, or will you walk according to the meditation on the law of God? I want to bring out just three things from this. Um, Firstly, um, God's order, which is a challenging subject. What what this psalm says about how it calls the, the wicked. And then thirdly, about the happy man. So firstly, let's think about God's order. Once you get um, beyond a superficial look at the text, it's a very obvious truth here that according to this psalm, the lives of human beings and of the world are governed by a divinely ordained moral order. The psalmist almost takes it for granted that there is an order to things. A belief that God exists a very specific belief about his nature and his will and how that is made known to us and a notion that he is good and wills good things. And the psalmist like takes that for granted, says that's what God is like and this is how life should be lived. The idea that God is good is not something that all religions have taken for granted. Pagan religions do not necessarily say that. But Christianity does and says that to live a happy life, you live in accordance with that personality acted out in your life. And the psalm underpins that and starts with that almost by taking it for granted rather than dissecting it and asking too many questions. But again, we come back to that question, why then isn't life exactly as Psalm 1 says it is? Because to our way of thinking, it just doesn't look true, does it? And the simple answer to that is, yes, that does look like a problem. But the more complicated answer is that the Bible is to be read in its entirety, hence our ambition to do that, because it deals with amazingly complex things called human beings. And an amazingly profound father whom we call God. The reality is we live in a fallen world where God's intention to give us good things all the time is thwarted by events of our own choice and of our fundamental fallen nature. The Garden of Eden, the term means Garden of Delight. That was God's heart for the world. And our experience is now out of joint with that because we're out of line with the purposes of God. Things are not as they ought to be. Jesus, the one above all others, lived a perfect life, did not have prosperity or comfort, and life ended on a cross. No correlation, necessarily, between circumstances of life and virtue. But God's desire is to bless and and to be with us even in the darkest hour of human life. And I want to point out that lack of correlation um, in, in 
with some kind of sensitivity because you might draw from this passage if something is wrong in your life that you are part of the wicked that you're one of the bad ones the ones that God doesn't love I heard it explained like this as a fairly direct example so forgive its um, directness but it was put to me like this you know that if you smoke cigarettes not if you just vaguely give off vapour if you smoke cigarettes I don't know where that came from, I'm sorry. Um, you greatly increase the, increase the risk that you will get a fatal disease, like heart disease, lung disease, or cancer, particularly lung cancer. However, just because you have cancer doesn't mean you smoked. You can't read the thing backwards the other way. Circumstances are not necessarily judgment. Positive circumstances not necessarily reward and negative ones not necessarily a comment on your life. So straight away you get this sense that what the, what the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes and the Psalms and the others say is a different form of wisdom. It's not a formula where one and one equals two. It's a transcendent truth that says this is the way to live because this is where you'll be blessed. So secondly, let's think about the wicked in that context. The wicked, it says here, fundamentally it's saying whatever they do, whoever they are, whatever characteristics they display, the fundamental aspect of these people is that they think evil can be perpetuated with impunity. They think they can get away with it. And that there is no link between what we do and how God deals with us. And there was, I think, a very scary moment in that summer riot scenario where there was a breakage between action and consequence. There was a feeling for 24 hours that actually you can do what you like if enough of you decide that that is what is going to happen. And when that, that, that link between action and consequence is broken, can you see how people behave? Not all people. But you can see how evil and how scary that is. And what the psalmist proclaims here is that that link is never broken. Actually, quite a lot of those people are finding out that because of something called CCTV, it wasn't really broken then. It's just the time scale was different. Instead of being punished there and then, it's catching up with them. Secondly, the wicked walk according to a process. It's not just an instant thing that you, you cross from being one to the other. The psalmist puts it like this. Um, I think this is an ESV version I'm reading. but It says, um, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law. There are some verbs used there. Walking, standing, sitting, and scoffing. The natural pull of life, the natural um, influence of the spirit of the age will be to pull you away from God. It will be like, oh, I don't know, try, trying to walk. Against, imagine you were made of iron and you're trying to walk against a very strong magnet. and It tries to pull you towards it. 
And it's a process. You walk. You start to walk towards this thing. You end up standing and lingering and looking. And then finally, you sit. And once you sit, you become it. And then you start to scoff and look back on where you came from and judge it. And the psalmist describes that that is, that is how the wicked become the wicked. You start to move towards it, and eventually you end up scoffing on where you came from. And one of the reasons why we want to do this together is that the Word of God prevents that drift. And it works really well if you do it daily. Because that drift is, is kind of all the time. It's like the force of gravity. It never stops. And one of the reasons that the psalmist extols the virtue of the wise man is that he goes counter to that force. He does what is actually quite a difficult thing. But he does it by meditating on the law, on the character, on the personality of God. He ends up by describing the wicked as chaff. Now, I don't know much about grain, but apparently there is a kernel, which is what you want, and it's surrounded by something which is called chaff, which you want to get rid of. And you do something called winnowing, and and one becomes separated from the other. And it's really helpful if there's a wind blowing, because the chaff will then be taken away. You don't have to do anything with it. And that's the picture that the psalmist uses here. The difference between the kernel, which is what you want, what you make your bread out of, and the chaff which gets thrown away. Now which one, I'm speaking to your heart motivation and your ambition now, which one would you prefer to be? Which one would you prefer to be described as? Would you prefer to be described as wheat or chaff? And I know that in my heart's desire, whatever mistakes I make, However imperfect I am, I'd love not to be thought of as chaff, as being swept away by the wind and worthless. So let's look at the happy man, the the contrast to that picture. Um, The Hebrew word here apparently is not blessed at all, it is happy. So if you've got the NIV in front of you, it probably says blessed. I, I, I think there's a tendency sometimes in the way Bibles are written to put a more spiritual word But the actual word is quite simple. And it does talk about happy, actually feeling good inside about the way you live. Not just blessed in in that kind of otherworldly, detached way, but feeling good. Being in a place where you know you're living in a right way and feeling good about that. What the psalmist refers to here is not otherworldly. A lot of stuff in the Old Testament is about the here and now. Even the word salvation is is usually used to mean here and now. Save me from this circumstance. Psalms are written in the context of real life, not in fairyland. And when it says happy is the one, it means happy is the person who does this. And happiness here is distinct from pleasure. Much of what we describe as happiness is actually Um, a sensorial thing. It's pleasure derived from some external circumstance. Um, And when that circumstance changes, so does our happiness. So this happiness that the Bible talks about is permanent. It's not dependent on circumstances. And the example that's given 
is a tree. A tree planted by streams of living water. And the point about a tree is that it's generative and regenerative. It generates fruit, which is useful to others. It nourishes and supports others, sustains and regenerates itself, and serves the environment. Um, um, particularly in, a, in our climate, um, we call it the, well, we don't call it the fall. Americans call it the fall. We call it autumn. But I can see why they call it the fall, um, because everything falls. And it nourishes the soil. That, 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 what looks like a negative death thing is actually a nourishing thing and a sustaining thing for the environment. And also a tree is well-rooted. It's not just planted. Um, and there's a very specific word here which really implies deeply rooted in the word in this context. And there's a parallel um, scripture, which is Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8, which says this. It's almost exactly the same. And I, I don't know whether one was copied from the other or not. But it says, they will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The Jeremiah passage emphasizes not that there will be no drought, not that there will be no heat, but the man who lives that way will not fear when the heat comes, will have no worries in the year of drought and will never fail to bear fruit. This is a happiness and a prosperity which is independent of circumstance. It's of the inner being. And the, and the word that used there for prosper in verse 2 is the same one as the one that is used in Genesis 39, verses 2 and 3, where it says, Joseph prospered. And Joseph was a slave. His entire life plan had apparently gone wrong. He hadn't inherited his father's uh, blessing, and he'd been sold off as a slave into Egypt. But God made him prosper because he was walking in God's plan, though it didn't look like it. And that's the sense of happiness and prosperity that this psalm talks about. So that's happiness. The second part about the happy man is that it is, in the language of the psalm, one person. It's talking about an individual, about you or me. The word there is ish, I-S-H, and it means literally one person. And the picture here is one against many. So happy is the man who listens to God despite the fact that everyone else is going the other way. Um, society standards, patterns of acceptable behavior, and popular conceptions of right and wrong are usually set by the majority, aren't they? By where most people want to go and God says that's not how I do it and blessed is the man who understands that and then finally it talks about the assembly of the righteous or the congregation of the righteous that's how I think of you the congregation of the righteous none of you believe me when I said that it's good so from the individual it brings it back into community that this way of living is only sustainable if we are together. 
And again, that brings me back to this. You know, if, if you think that you're going to stand alone, you cannot stand alone in standing alone. You will fall. So the idea is that we do this together. And although we haven't yet set up the, um, the Facebook page to do it, Marcelo and I are going to do it on Wednesday. And there will be a way of doing this together and sharing thoughts and get, gaining encouragement from people's experiences and uh, efforts in walking through the Bible in a year. So we can do it together. So that when you're alone, metaphorically, in the workplace, and you need to draw on it, there's a community behind you and backing you up. The same is true of life groups. That's why we encourage people to get into small groups in the church, so that they are um, in a sustainable community. I could easily go on all day about this psalm. Oh, it's up there. Okay. Keeps you on your toes, doesn't it? I'm going to go back to that. I think I may have clicked it twice. I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to read this sentence again. I just want to ask you, what is the fundamental realm of your decision making? Are you fundamentally of the world, tacking a bit of God on the edge? Or do you feel inspired to say, no, I'm going to meditate on the law of God and make my life distinct? I'd like to be wheat. I don't want to be chaff. I'd like to be part of, the, of that process that reclaims this fallen creation, not part of the consequences of it. And in essence, that's all Psalm 1 is saying. And saying that that is linked to feel inside character of God played out through you and the happiness that comes with it. I wonder if you'd stand with me.